Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. But there were so many people, you know, in the background doing a lot of work that never will receive attention or never will be propped up because they didn't fit that narrative. And I hate that even in movements, they do that to people. Like Mm -hmm. even in the civil rights movement, this big, huge thing, right? They still were being, well, felt like being controlled by Eurocentric standards of, you know, education and beauty and things like that. And I hate that that still happened within movement spaces. That was activist Amber Sherman, and she is back on the show to update us on situations locally, internationally, and, and of course, politically. She's also going to weigh in when we talk about Septima Clark, often called the mother of the civil rights movement. And you will hear more from Amber and Septima Clark. But first, my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast is on stations across the country. Thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We are also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by you, the listener, because it is you that keeps Radio Free Nashville going. And as a result, this radio show is then picked up by the Pacifica Radio Network so that we are heard across the country. So if you think... This is important. Just go to RadioFreeNashville.org and click on the donate button. And keep Harvey and I on the air in every time zone in the U.S. And please go to the VeteransForPeace.org website and do the same. While the mainstream media, YouTube, Twitter, and other platforms are censoring voices of activism and dissent, we will continue to share those voices who stand up against the establishment, who stand up against the military, industrial, congressional, media, corporate complex, who stand up for us the global us. And we've got two examples. Today, we're going to talk to Amber Sherman, a current activist for human rights. And then we will reflect on the work of Septima Clark, also known as the mother of the movement. So before we get going, we need to promote an important webinar coming up at the end of the month, February 29th. Uh, Veterans for Peace and the Nuclear Abolition Working Group are hosting an important webinar titled Warheads to Windmills, Addressing the Threats of Climate and Nuclear Weapons Before It Is Too Late. We will have distinguished speakers, Dr. Ivana Hughes, President of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, and Tim and Wallace, Executive Director of Nuclear Ban and the Warheads to Windmills Coalition. To find out more information and to register, just go to the veteransforpeace.org website and check on the events coming up. It's off to the right on the homepage. Okay, in more Veterans for Peace news, Veterans for Peace has written a letter to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and others demanding the termination of provisions of military weapons and munitions to Israel, which also states that, that Veterans for Peace is undertaking a public investigation as well as making referral to the department's inspector general because we believe that the Department of State staff have violated a number of laws, treaties, and regulations, including the conventional arms transfer policy, the Foreign Assistance Act, 
the Arms Export Control Act, the U.S. War Crimes Act, the Leahy Law, and the Genocide Convention Implementation Act. That letter is also on the website, and you can see that. So, Veterans for Peace, taking action. Just for a second, I want to promote Ava DuVernay's latest movie, Origin, which is based on Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, a New York Times bestseller. I watched the movie and immediately ordered the book. Wilkerson found herself challenged by the idea of racism and what that actually means in the world, where no matter where you are, no matter what country you live in, there's always a population that is marginalized. Beyond the United States white-black difference, she looked at the Nazis, where it was white and white, but it was Aryan and Jew. And then she traveled to India uh, and the Brahmins versus the untouchables. And she found striking similarities in all three. The movie tells the story of Isabel Workerson's journey to researching and then writing the book. And so go see the movie, then buy the book, because I'm about halfway through it. Uh, and the movie is called Origin. Okay, with that, let's start our discussion with Amber Sherman about what is going on locally and nationally and politically. Uh, but first, Amber, I want to I want to get your take on the recent tragedy of those three Army reservists, all African Americans, killed in the Middle East. I got a quick clip. Today, three U.S. soldiers were killed in Jordan when a drone packed with explosives struck a shelter where troops were asleep. President Biden blaming radical Iran-backed militant groups operating in the region. More than 30 U.S. troops were also wounded, according to two U.S. officials, including several who were medevaced out because of the severity of their injuries. A spokesperson for the Jordanian government denied the attack occurred on their soil, but U.S. officials insist it was in Jordan. This is the first time U.S. troops have been killed during the more than three months of assaults by Iranian-backed militia groups. Now more than 160 attacks against bases with Americans in Iraq and Syria since October 17th. And just one week ago, multiple U.S. troops were injured when a barrage of ballistic missiles hit al-Assad Air Base in Iraq. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin releasing a statement saying he is outraged and deeply saddened. The attack targeted a small outpost near the Syrian border known as Tower 22, according to U.S. officials. The troops there work with and advise the Jordanian military. But it also supports the U.S. garrison on the other side of the border in Syria, called Al Tan. We visited that base five years ago. The troops there tasked with keeping ISIS in check. But the entire area has a much bigger mission. Situated along a highway that runs from Tehran to Baghdad and all the way to Damascus, the troops there are cutting off a land bridge for Iran to move weapons and fighters into Syria. Okay, there's a little clip. Did anybody notice something missing? There's always a great uh, unspoken situation that led to all that, which is Gaza. You know, I was thinking she mentioned three months over the last three months. Mm -hmm. and but what happened three months ago at this point what happened three months ago that was is israel's uh beginning of the genocide 
after the Hamas attack on October 7th. But yeah. she never mentioned Israel. She never mentioned Gaza. She always she mentioned Iran a number of times. Yeah. And we also know that the Houthis and Hezbollah have always have have said since the beginning they'll mm-hmm. stop bombing us as soon as we stop as soon as Israel stops and as soon as we can get Israel to stop so it was just shocking to me well she that, said since october 17th but she didn't say what triggered it yes what's the motivation to all these attacks yeah exactly so amber i want to get your perspective yeah, I think you made a good point about um, the person, the reporter specifically never mentioning Israel or Gaza. Um, I think that there's this tactic, especially in the media, to make sure they're not connecting those two things to make it just seem like, you know, Iran and Syria are these just unruly places that they have to keep in check, as she mentioned, even though specifically Iran and Syria are like majority brown and Muslim populations. But um, I think those are just like dog whistle, like signals um, mm-hmm. in language, especially around the media, because um, they don't want to give a reason for why those people will be attacking there. And they mm-hmm. just want to make it seem like these unruly people are just so violent and just won't stop, you know, all this violence. So the U.S. has to come in and mm-hmm. keep them in shape. And I think that the reservists, the black reservists that lost their lives, I think that's exactly what what happens when. Um, we join wars or, you know, join alliance with folks for no real reason, right? Other than, you know, just trying to stay buddy-buddy with Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, Black folks are the ones who usually lose their lives first. Like, they're the ones who are sent out. I know a lot of folks who are reservists that are Black that are either over there or in the Navy and other places who are scared for their lives because they know that this is really violent. And it isn't something that we should be involved in, but here we are. Well, Amber, first of all, we're glad to have you back on the show. It's been a year or two or whatever, or, you know, time flies. Uh, what's what's the situation uh, in Tennessee? And from your standpoint as a African-American activist, young lady. I'm black. You're black. Okay. <laughs> as a black young lady. What is your perspective about what's going on? In Gaza? In Gaza, in Tennessee, in Ukraine, in, in the White House, in the state legislature, um, I feel like currently, like nationally, there's a lot of genocides happening in Sudan, in the Congo, in Palestine. Um, black and brown people are under attack heavily and losing their lives. And I think that there isn't enough attention on it. Uh, there's enough attention on the Congo and on Sudan, which are you know African countries. There isn't enough attention on what's happening in Palestine. And, and I think it's disgusting that our government is using our tax dollars to fund it. Um, and similarly, in Tennessee, I think it's disgusting that the government is using our tax dollars to build a, a cop city here. Um, I think it's disgusting that they are pushing back against local reforms that have been passed uh, with legislation like SB 2572 that would make it where we can't. Um, pass local police reforms um, because the state doesn't want them. And I think that that is a, it's a huge governmental overreach. Um, I think that they aren't actually doing anything to resolve crime other than being more tough on crime. There's a lot of bail and criminal justice bills this session. 
um, the bail bills are, are unconstitutional and heavily target um, the ability for folks to bail people out. It changes different things about how judges can decide bail, which also isn't legal. Um, and I think that these white men specifically, because that's the majority of um, the Tennessee House and Senate, don't want to approach crime in the way that would actually resolve anything because we actually give Black folks, like the folks in Memphis, um, which is the majority of Memphis, political power or any kind of economical power, which gives them political power, then we would have more actual power to make decisions. And so they win by keeping us in poverty and keeping us in jail um, and keeping surveillance on us and other tactics. It's one of the main reasons why people are fighting back, where they're pushing back so hard, because we know what, what happens when we're protected. We know when there's what happens when there's police reforms in place, like the ones that we passed here. You know, it keeps Memphis safer. And so we want to make sure that we're able to protect those. And all I've seen this session is the Tennessee legislature pushing no real data, horrible statistics that don't even exist, talking points, sensationalized talking points to get the white folks going and not doing anything that actually resolves crime. And all they do is talk about crime. Like that's the only issue happening in Memphis. It is not. Yeah, I'm I, in, <clears throat> we're in North Charleston and the North Charleston police are really notorious, but uh, they passed a big bill to install 1,700 surveillance cameras in high crime neighborhoods, of course. And then they've got a huge operation center with all these screens. And, you know, they're taking, I don't know how many cops, you know, off doing anything for the community. And they're all sitting in front of these monitors and supposedly stop crime that way. Amber. I think we all know the answer, but how would you stop crime? I would pass a universal-based income. Yeah. Um, I would increase the federal minimum wage, like nationally, but locally I would increase the, the minimum wage. But definitely a universal-based income. And I would actually listen to the people who are telling you what they need. I mm. think one of the biggest issues here in Memphis is that we complain about crime and youth and youth committing crimes, but no one's actually listening to the youth who have said multiple times they have nothing to do. Yeah. The only things that are available to them are in downtown Memphis or in areas that are, are inaccessible because they don't have cars or they don't mm -hmm. have good public transit. Mm -hmm. um, but instead of the, them actually listening to what they want, they just complain. Someone was complaining on the Internet today about people doing a car meetup. And I was like, well, if you just give people a place to have the car meetup, then they won't, you know, back up traffic on a random street. But instead, we complain about it and talk about how violent they are and say we're in Gotham City. Like, which is also a dog whistle because it's just calling our city violent saying that we're just, you know, way beyond, we're just beyond, you know, any kind of repair or hope. And I, I don't think that's true either. I think that we are purposely not listening to the people who are the majority here, who are telling you what they want and what they need. And we just complain instead. Charleston housing is a huge issue. No affordable housing and in the neighborhoods that they say are the crime ridden neighborhoods. They've been no investment in them. The streets are in terrible condition. The houses are falling apart. The landlords don't keep them up. Yeah, I had a friend who ran for city council in North Charleston. Oh, yeah. Um, who was talking about the housing issue there. I was interviewed by Channel 5. It didn't get on the air, because maybe because I was cussing so much. But the state Senate uh, just passed, well, it went from committee to this floor, I think, to support Israel. And 
Exactly. And there was uh, some protesters outside saying it's time to support a ceasefire. It's time to support human rights. I was there that day. They had like the babies on the, they had like these wrapped up white sheets with blood on them. Yeah. On the steps of like dead children. It was like a political theater thing. It was really cool, actually. So you were here? I was there there that day. Yeah. All right. Well, good, good for you. I should, I should have expected that. There was also, I I also heard, because I saw a uh, tweet from Justin Jones and Afton Ben that Mm -hmm. there was a Nazi Ku Klux Klan march in nashville do you know anything about that i saw like some videos of it um but once again weird white men do stuff like that all the time they're never going to come out with their faces uncovered or you know actually show who they are because they're probably police officers but it doesn't scare me and i think there's a reason why they went to the area they went to because they if they went to north nashville or they went to the hood they would have been scared they went somewhere random where mm-hmm. they didn't think that you know no one would bother them and they would be safe. Yeah, I'm sure they I'm I'm sure they stopped by Broadway in Nashville because yeah. they'd have been perfectly safe there. Yes. Yeah. We've heard some discussion about Biden and running for president and his dwindling chances. What do you know? What's your perspective? Um, I don't know anything. I would say my opinion is that I don't think he's gonna win. I think it's going to win because we don't fuck with genocide Joe. Yeah. And the folks who will vote for him, younger voters, black women, these black pastors that have come out even and say something like black folks don't agree with how he's handling this. Young folks don't agree with it. And also young people don't agree with how he lied to us. He said he would forgive our student loans. He didn't. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I will, I will say that Trump used when he was president, he used his executive orders a lot. He used that power a lot. Biden, not so much, even though he has the power to do it. He won't do it. He's making excuses and he thinks that people are stupid and they aren't going to find out. But we're smarter and we understand how the political process and the congressional process and the powers of the president work. And we know that the president has the power to forgive our student loans, but he's choosing not to. Mm -hmm. He's choosing to blame someone else. And that's not okay. And you don't get rewarded for that. The same thing happened in Alabama. Um, there was this white man who ran for Senate, I believe. Um, and he won his seat. He promised black women voters all these different things because that's how he won really was a majority of black women voting for him. And then he didn't do them. In the next election, he lost because they didn't go vote for him. And I think that the same thing is going to happen here. Biden is going to be held accountable. And scare tactics people are using, they're not going to work on us. And I think that people aren't understanding that a lot of older voters, especially, are really pushing these scare tactics on younger people. That doesn't work on us. We're not afraid. There isn't anything that's that's happened that I, you know, haven't experienced. There's there's no they're talking about how you know this is gonna be the end of democracy. When have we had democracy? This is gonna be the end of the world we know it. When have I experienced mm-hmm. equity or fairness as a black woman? Right. Like that hasn't happened for me. So I'm not afraid of it. Um, and I really wish they would try to do some some different talking points but it doesn't work and i don't think he's gonna win i think that trump is probably gonna win and i encourage everybody to vote third party third party you're not it doesn't sound like you're afraid of a trump presidency no fear takes a lot of energy and i don't think that fear is helpful like fear is a very strong emotion a very strong deterrent that trump actually uses to get votes right Mm -hmm. um and i think that the the most important thing we can do is not 
have all of this fear because you can't think rationally when you're fearful. You can't be effective when you're fearful. You can't get things done. And because I'm not afraid, I'm able to be effective. I'm able to be a good organizer. I'm able to, to make things happen. And there was a lot of stuff that happened during Trump's presidency that I was able to, to get, you know, going here in Memphis and other places because I didn't spend four years being afraid of some white man and, you know, the power that he had. I think that that doesn't do us any good to, you know, just squander what could be possible with sitting in in um in fear that doesn't do anything do you think that might be one of the positives that if trump is elected people are going to get out on the street people right now don't think oh i better not get out on the street i better not protest what's going on because biden's a democrat and, and democrats are not as bad as republicans and so i better not go out and protest while do what they live up way, they've probably never been out in the street and never will be i can remember the first weekend that trump was president we had fifteen thousand ladies and and their and, and their husbands and boyfriends and other people and partners out in nashville fifteen thousand in nashville and, uh, you know protesting trump so i think maybe trump might generate people getting more out on the street. What do you, uh, what do you what, think? So many of the things Biden has done, if Trump had done them, you know, there'd be nonstop hell raising and condemnation on all the media. When Trump does it, at least the the media is going to go crazy. We'll get out in the streets, but I don't think that that should be the driving force. I don't think we should be, we should, you know, sit by because Biden's president. Cause I think Biden has shown us as president, he ain't doing shit. I mean, he hasn't been responsive to pushes around the genocide happening. He hasn't been responsive to pushes around like these key issues, the pipelines that were being pushed to be built, mm-hmm. um, the issues around student loans, like he hasn't responded. So I don't think that we should be like, oh, let's hold off because he's a Democrat. I think that that's stupid. I think we should always be applying pressure um, and organizing around issues. And the main thing I've been organizing around right now is a lot of bill legislation because the Tennessee State House has a lot of bills around bail. One specifically, HB seventeen nineteen, um, which originally said that they would remove financial consideration as one of the eight tenets to be considered when a judge is setting bail, which is unconstitutional. And so, since we continue to raise that issue at the last uh, committee meeting, the sponsor John Gillespie added an amendment that says they will add back financial consideration, but you cannot consider a defendant's ability to pay, which is the exact same thing, um, <laughs> just different language. So we're still pushing back against that because someone's ability to pay should be considered when setting bail. Um, and it's unconstitutional to not do so. And that's why we have the Constitution and amendments of the Constitution, like the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, that make sure that we are considering someone's ability to pay. Bail should be... Based on whether you're a flight risk or whether you're a risk to society or risk to the people around you, that's that should be the only consideration for bail and should have nothing to do with cash. And I talked about that. I actually testified on the bill and I talked about how, you know, after 24 hours, if you don't get out of jail, you've lost your whole livelihood. Yeah. And so bail is the the ability for someone to pay is a huge tenant because yeah. it can be the reason why someone isn't able to get out. And if we want to say, you know, we need folks to have jobs and have good livelihoods so they aren't committing crimes, but then you take that all away from them, you know, by not giving them bail, then it's a direct contradiction. Um, There's also a bill about requiring folks to wear electronic monitoring as a required condition. So if a judge sets bail conditions, one of the required conditions is electronic monitoring. 
and a lot of folks don't know that you have to pay for electronic monitoring. It's not free. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's actually no statewide infrastructure for electronic monitoring. So it has a huge fiscal note of $34 million because it's not actually something the state is set up to do. Um, and it also costs people. So if we're going to say this is a required condition, that's a that should at least be you know free. They shouldn't have to pay for it. You have to pay sometimes weekly, some places bi-weekly. You have to put down a down payment. And it's not cheap. It's like $150 bi-weekly. Like it's, that's a lot of money. And so I think that for us to require that as a condition of bail is a huge ask on people. And I don't think that it's going to deter crime. And I don't think they're actually using any statistics for the bail bills that they have in place because the data actually shows that the recidivism numbers have gone down. The data actually shows that people do come back to jail. So these are actually unnecessary because if we're looking at just Shelby County data, people show up and most of the cases are dismissed. If we're looking at Tennessee data, people still show up to court and most of the cases are dismissed. It's just a another way to put like further surveillance on people. Is it only Tennessee or is this happening in a lot of places? Oh, this is happening in a lot of places. A lot of places have the same. There's a specific bail bill about community bail funds that's passed part of Georgia's house. I think it's going to the Senate now. Um, and theirs is more strict, but it says that you can't bail someone out more than three times, like an individual person, that you can't use bail funds. It can't be over a certain amount. There's a bill here that will prevent the use of bail funds unless it's in a church. But other than that, you can't use a bail fund to bail someone out. It has to be a personal family member. And then there's a similar bill like that in Kentucky. Like they're all throughout the South. And I mean, I think up North too, I've seen similar stuff. There's these very strict bills about bail. The uh, crime anonymous thing that's happening in D.C. is also happening in Kentucky. Luckily, it's not happening here. But there's similar bills everywhere. And I think that We've really seen that around bail as the the further criminalization of it, which I think has a lot to do with people in the uprising and trying to prevent folks from um, being able to get out of jail, mm-hmm. especially in and- Georgia, where you have Cop City, where people were being arrested and being released and they want to be able to hold them. And so if they can't get out of jail, then they can hold them. and They think that that's going to prevent folks from still pushing back against Cop City. And that's not true because people are not going to stop. I think they've shown they aren't going to stop. They're three years into that movement and And they haven't stopped yet. And the groups that are raising uh, funds for bail in uh, Cop City are being charged with some crap. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and when you talk about that, you mean it's like groups. There's a number of groups that have sprung up over the last, I don't know, four or five years that I've heard of them, where they actually get contributions from regular citizens like like me, so that they can help people um, post bail. And now these states are making that illegal so that the, the state, through the bail system, can punish not only the person who's been arrested and is trying to get out uh, before their case is dismissed, mm-hmm. and their family. Because only the family, if only the family can do it, most of these families don't have the wherewithal to post bail. And so you you got to punish the family and the person that's been arrested. So- I heard an excellent podcast on electronic monitoring. It's uh, this guy's podcast is Doug Henwood, H-E-N-W-O-O-D, Behind the News. And I'm looking at his uh, archive here. It was January 18th. It's Wanda Bertram. She's uh, an expert on electronic monitoring, and, and it was a real eye-opener listening to her. So you might want to check that out. 
I'll send you the information on it. But. Yeah, that sounds cool. So, Amber Sherman, activist from Memphis. You've told us to be concerned with two House bills, House Bill 1719 and House Bill 2572. And we should contact our representative and say, you know, vote no, get in the way of these two things. Anything else you want to talk about before we move on to Septima Clark? No, not particularly. I appreciate having some space to talk about what's happening in Tennessee because there's a lot occurring. Yeah, there, there is a lot. And so when when you were talking, after doing some research about Septima Clark, I'm thinking, well, Amber's doing what Septima did as far as asking the people what they want, not somebody coming in and telling the people what they want because – when um, Septima was at uh, Highlander, and Harvey knows more about this than I did, she would get around and say, we got to listen to the people rather than telling them what to do. She was like, she had the same philosophy as Miles Horton, that uh, oppressed people know the solutions to their problems. They just need help being able to come together and, and work them out. It's not like somebody from outside is going to tell them what they need to be doing or what their problems are. I'm going to play this clip. It's a good clip given the the history of Septima Clark. This is Kathleen Mellon Charon. I wrote a book called Freedom's Teacher, The Life of Septima Clark, which is a biography of Septima Clark, who was a lifelong educator, social activist, and civil rights activist. And my book is about... Her educational activism, both prior to and during and after the Civil Rights Movement. So I was interested in telling her story because she was a very important person in the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, But she was also important before that. She was nearly 60 years old by the time she did what she's most well known for, which is the Citizenship Education Program, Citizenship Schools. Um, So as I got into researching this book, I was like, well, what did she do from 20 to 60? What did she do that prepared her to do this? And what does this tell us about the deeper roots of the movement and women's roles in it? And then her schools were sites, primary sites of women's activism during the movement, too. So looking at this one figure was a way to tell a longer story about the civil rights movement, but also about black women's activism across the 20th century. So Septima Clark was born in Charleston in 1898. Her father was a slave, uh, and her mother was a free woman who had been raised in Haiti part of the time, but also born in Charleston. Um, She started her teaching career in 1916 in a rural school on Johns Island, which is a sea island off the coast of Charleston. She continued her career in urban schools in South Carolina, spent most of her teaching career, all of her teaching career in South Carolina. And then in 1956, uh, the state of South Carolina passed a law forbidding state employees from belonging to subversive organizations such as the NAACP. And she lost her job and her retirement. And then she developed a citizenship education program to be used during the Civil Rights Movement. So the citizenship schools were designed to enable African Americans in the South 
to learn to read and write so that they could pass the literacy test required by southern states to register to vote. Um, but beyond that, so they had a practical literacy component. But beyond that, Clark's curriculum taught people about political literacy and economic literacy. So for her, the focus, you know, the first hurdle was registering to vote, but, but the real job was coming to understand citizenship responsibilities and then using the vote to bring improvement to your local community. The ostensible first goal of the schools was to pass the literacy test and register to vote. Each southern state had a different literacy test that usually required applicants to read a section of the state, read and interpret a section of the state constitution to the satisfaction of the registrar. The registrar was always a white person who could find anything to like say, well, that wasn't good enough, right? But you also had to sign your name on the form. So that was the first step, and it was a concrete goal. And once people were able to do that, they could imagine doing other things as well. It's like this practical literacy gave people the self-confidence that they had otherwise lacked because they had been dependent on other people because they couldn't read for themselves. So how the, how the citizenship schools worked, Highlander oversaw them from 1957 until 1961, at which point it transferred the program to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is Dr. King's organization. Um, and from there, the program spread throughout the South. How they did this was they had community organizers identifying people who would most likely make good teachers in their community. And they looked for people with PhD minds who had never had a chance to get an education. So it was very grassroots. And they would bring people to a week-long workshop where they would teach them how to teach the classes, how to recruit students, how to gauge people's educational levels, and then how to identify what needed doing in the community and then start to work on that problem. Another part of the genius of the citizenship schools is that few moderate white Southerners could argue against teaching semi-literate African Americans to read and write. So segregation actually at times provides a camouflage. Right? White people don't know what's going on in that classroom. It's only once people who pass through those schools put what they learned into practice that white people start to figure out these schools are a source of the problem. Um, so the genius of it is, is that segregation provides cover. Well, the schools are funded by private foundations uh, and teachers receive a small stipend for teaching. Uh, they meet two nights a week and usually run for five or six weeks, and then everybody goes to attempt to register. Um, but in the course of that, they're also learning math. They're learning how to pay their taxes. They're learning how to read a tax bill, right, if they own property so they won't lose it for not paying their taxes, right? Um, so they're learning all these other skills that can be applied beyond going to vote, and that's the significance. 
So, and Sefta McClark throughout her life was also part of a network of black women activists in the South. So people that she knew were people like Ella Baker, who was instrumental in the founding of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. She met Rosa Parks in the summer of 1955 when Parks attended the Highlander Folk School where Clark developed the citizenship schools initially. Four months after Parks left Highlander is the day she refuses to move from her seat on the bus, right? So there's a lot of behind-the-scenes organizing and educational efforts going on in the movement before things emerge into public view. And Clark was a big kind of behind-the-scenes person, preparing people to take action through her education program. As far as things that people don't know, I don't think that many people know of her at all and her role in the movement. I mean, Clark first took political action in 1919, after World War I. She joined the Charleston NAACP to force Charleston to hire black teachers in, its black, in their black schools, public schools, because they only had white teachers at this point. Um, and so she, she joined early, um, and she kept, not, not a unbroken chain, say, but she, she had that experience. And through that experience, she kind of set the pattern that she would follow throughout her life, which was to advocate on behalf of black women and their professional options, but also on behalf of black children. So she was concerned throughout her life and her activism with things like health care, um, employment, uh, political participation. And of course this ebbs and flows over the course of her life, but it's always there. You know, one thing I think that's really important that Septima Clark recognized is she said one time, it's like the pebble thrown in the mill pond. One thing spreading out starts others. And I think that was like a lifelong approach for her. And certainly it shows her wisdom. And I think that that's also something she would say to us today. Septima Clark also was quoted as saying, I like to create a little chaos. Stir things up. <laughs> yes. So, Amber, are you ready to take over the mantle of Septima Clark? Or are you just another, are you just another pebble? Uh, causing making waves oh wow <laughs> i think that's a huge mantle to take on um and i'm really glad y'all talking about her when they were talking about like the work that she's done it made me think of dr polly murray who's from actually from durham north carolina mm -hmm. i know that septima, septima clark was in charleston um south carolina it made me think about her in the the similar work that she did and I think that there are a lot of Black women, especially that worked in the background a lot, that did a lot of, like, teaching about organizing, which is actually something I have been doing, like, the last year. But I think that there does need to be, like, more focus on, like, those leaders, because there's a lot of wisdom in who they are and how they organized. Zephyr McClark was kind of an unknown, and how the, the way the civil rights movement was portrayed and the way people remember it was all based on the national leadership and the marches, you know, to Washington or to Selma, you know, all this public demonstrations with uh, King and other 
national leaders, but uh, they make the point that you know these all these people that were following in that many of them were the products of citizenship schools around the country. <laughs> what I was going to play next was actually Septima Clark's words talking about Rosa Parks, and this is a little hard to hear, but we'll make it happen. Planned three workshops. Uh, one was to be with. Um, school teachers, public school teachers, to see how they felt about uh, integration because the Supreme Court decision had just been rendered. The uh, second workshop was to be with labor unions to find out how the uh, labor unions would support uh, integration. And the third one was to be on the United Nations and find out uh, what um, was going to be happening at the United Nations, which would have a meeting in, in uh, San Francisco in 57. Well, um, I was made director of education at the Highland Folk School um, that year, and uh, Rosa Parks sent me a letter from Montgomery, Alabama, asking to get a scholarship. She was working with a youth group for the NAACP, and she wanted to um, be able to come into the August workshop, which had to do with the United Nations, and to see how um, she could get herself prepared to work better with the youth. And she further said that I would like to make a contribution that would help all people. So uh, she came to the uh, workshop in August 1955, and talked very little, was very shy. And uh, at the close of, just before the close of the workshop, up in the dormitory one night, uh, they were talking about how the Freedom Train came into uh, Alabama, and Rosa told them what a hard time they had getting the Freedom Train into Alabama because the train would not come if the people could not stand in line on a first-come, first-served basis, there could be no discrimination going into the cars to see the documents. And uh, finally, she had a letter from Washington saying just that. And the school children were allowed to go uh, into the um, train uh, on a first-come, first-served basis. Um, the next day in the workshop, I asked Rosa, would she tell the people in the workshop about the coming of the Freedom Train to Montgomery, which she hated very much because she was afraid that uh, some of the Southern whites would go back and say what she had said, and then she would be in for harassment. Uh, nevertheless, she ventured to tell it, and uh, um, at the close of the workshop, uh, when she went home, uh, she worked real well uh, with her group. Well, Miles um, Horton was visiting at my house in December, on December 1st, 1955, and read in the papers that Rosa Parks had been arrested for failing to give up her seat to a white man who had come into the bus. She was sitting in the section of the bus that was designed for black people to sit in. The first ten seats were reserved for the whites. And so you sat to the back. Well, she sat in that section. She'd been working all day at a store, uh, working on a coat, she said, for a fashionable white woman of the town. And uh, she was tired. 
So she decided that she wouldn't get up that day, and she wouldn't. And of course, the bus driver drove her to the nearest corner where he found a policeman and arrested her for not getting up out of that seat. And when she was arrested, it really caused quite a commotion throughout the um, city of Montgomery. The news spread, and there was a Mr. Pierce of um, Alabama State College who called a meeting that night, and he said to the people that you're not going to do anything about this because you haven't done anything. A 15-year-old girl was beaten last week because she refused to move, and you did nothing. So uh, nearly every family in the town, black family, had had trouble on the buses on account of the uh, kinds of laws that they had. Sometimes the people would put their money in the front in that slot, and then by the time they could get around to the side door to get in, the bus would drive off with their uh, money. And there they had lost their money and didn't have the ride as well. These were the kinds of things that that, uh, they'd been suffering for so many years. So this night, um, the, there was a Mr. Ed Nixon who um, decided that he was going down and take uh, Rosa out of jail, and he did. Now, he was an NAACP worker, and uh, that night at the church, they um, decided that uh, we're going to do something about this. We're not going to let this go on forever. And they said that uh, we'll boycott the buses. Of course, um, Dr. King came up with a good idea that that would be one way that they could stop this. And they decided that they would. Well, a white, um, a black woman who was working as a domestic went back to tell the woman she was working for that they were going to uh, boycott the buses. And this woman called the publishers of the paper, Montgomery Advertiser, I think is his name, and said that the black people are going to um, boycott your buses. And they said, very well, we will um, put a, um, big headlines in the paper on Sunday morning, and then we will um, put a motorcycle cop at the back of each bus to see what happens. And... Uh, this thing came out in the papers on Sunday morning that the blacks were going to um, boycott buses and that a motorcycle cop would follow. And the people thought that the cop was going to keep them off the buses. And so they refused to ride. And on Monday morning, sure enough, um, you know, there are two bases there, uh, two Air Force bases, and the people had to ride up. And that morning there weren't any passengers to go on the buses. They crowded on street corners. They got rides. Some of the doctors and the doctor's wives picked them up and carried them to their work. And so we said the casting class was broken down when the uh, doctor's wives, you know, middle-class blacks, uh, put into their Cadillacs the um, domestic workers and took them to work. This went on for quite some time. And it got worse. And finally, um, people um, still refused to ride, and many of them walked many miles. They walked for 381 days. They walked for 381 days. I have this very hate-love relationship with the bus boycott movement. I feel like 
Um, it's a great example of sustained organizing, which I think is the most successful. Yeah. But I do feel like movements, especially the civil rights movement, popped up people as like figures or national figures who they felt fit the description of what they see as professional and respectable. And Rosa Parks fit that. And I think that there were other people who had attempted to do similar things, like the the young lady who was like pregnant. She's like a 19 year old pregnant um, young black girl who done the same thing. And she went to the NAACP and asked for support and they wouldn't support her because she didn't fit the narrative of what they wanted. Just like how people, you know, uplift Martin Luther King because he was this pastor, black guy, married. But there were so many people you know, in the background doing a lot of work that never will receive attention or never will be propped up because they didn't fit that narrative. And right. I hate that even in movements, they do that to people. Like mm-hmm. even in the civil rights movement, this big, huge thing, right? They still were being, what well, felt like being controlled by Eurocentric standards of, you know, education and beauty and things like that. And I hate that that still happened within movement spaces. So I just have a hate-love relationship with it because I do think that it was successful and I do think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from sustained organizing like that. But I think that there shouldn't be a there shouldn't be a specific type of person that is allowed to lead that kind of work. I saw an interview with Diane Nash, who uh, very important, especially in and around Nashville, but she was just laying out the misogynistic approach of the movement that it was so difficult for her to get her ideas listened to and that you, you know it was it was the guys that were the ones getting the press and as we as you look back you know it was the guys and yet um black women like yourself were it it doesn't happen without the black women so harvey you so the you nashville make, movement was set very much that way not yes. just uh, Diane Nash, but all of the support systems and telephone trees and the people that, uh, <clears throat> you know, brought food to these people in the jails and stuff like that. I mean, it was the, the women that were really at the center of most of that. Yep. So uh, we've got one more clip of Septima in her own words. You, you, you ready to listen to that, Amber? I have to go. I'm sorry, guys. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's All nice right. to see you again, Harvey. Thanks, please. Amber. Take care. Keep up the good fight. Sure. Yes, please. I will. Well, that was Amber Sherman, friend of the show and civil rights, uh, how about human rights activist? And we were so appreciative of her dropping by. And so, Harvey, we got one more clip of Septima Clark. So here's Septima again in her own words. So (laughs) the um, minister came and met me. That day in the church, the White Citizen Council, a man lived right across, not too far from the church. I can't think of his name now, but he was head of that group. He came there with his group and threw tear gas bombs into that church all over the carpet. And our mm-hmm. young people got so sick, they went out on the grass and just volunteered. This was the kind of thing that we had to put up with. But uh, we, it didn't stop us. We went along, and we kept working. I went into Grenada, 
uh, Mississippi, and while I was there, we were having a meeting in one of the Baptist churches, and we just finished our meeting, and I got out on that sidewalk, and that whole church went into flames. And when did those people get in there to put those um, firebombs or whatever they were in all corners of the church? I don't know. But it wasn't but five minutes before mm. when we stepped out. But, you know, that didn't stop us. The next day we met and we talked with our people again and kept them going. Uh, some of the whites caught a 15-year-old boy outside of that church the next day. I don't know whether you heard about it, but they bounced him up and down on that sidewalk and broke his left leg, it was, in two or three places. And people from the north and other places sent money. I'd take him all the way to Clarksdale to hospital so he could be treated. Uh, but I say out of all of these things, you find some good come because today... In Alabama, after all of the things that we had to go through in Alabama, in Montgomery, and uh, being surrounded by the Ku Klux Klan in Natchez and other places, uh, I found out that there were always some people who had some kind of a human spirit about them and would come to your rescue. It's so sad that she's neglected in history as important as she was well uh, you know i don't think that it mattered that much to her no one one other thing that she quoted rosa parks on was when uh was around the time of the selma march she was asked to speak up she said that uh, because of how she was treated as a child up through her, you know being even being an adult the cruelty of white people was ever present and she said, if it hadn't been for Highlander, of course, Highlander was an integrated school. And they had people from, when they were focusing on civil rights, especially they had uh, blacks from the South for the most part. But they had white people from the North and from the South there. And it was, it was always integrated, which was what got them in trouble with the state of Tennessee, because they they were assumed to be communist because of that. But she said, had it not been for Highlander, I would still hate all white people. She, I'm sure she's not the exception. Oh, I know. People who have endured that, you know, harbored those feelings. Sure. Yeah. And it, it made me, it just made me think of Hamas. Yeah. Or, you know, the people of Gaza who, who over, you know, decades have been treated like caged animals. Mm-hmm. And, dehumanized and bombed and family members killed and maimed. One of the podcasts that I follow talks that, that talks about how much they always call them the resistance because that's basically what they are. She said, you have to understand Hamas is an army of orphans. These are people who, if their parents weren't killed, they were traumatized or they lost other family members from all these uh, Israeli bombings over the years. What else would you expect? And and that they were doing what's permitted under the law. 
the people under occupation are permitted to resist and to attempt their freedom. It can include armed resistance. If you look at history, every people who have been occupied and oppressed like that have had a resistance movement, including the U.S. Well said. What you just said really relates back to the book by Isabel Wilkerson. Yeah. Where Palestinians are brown. Cast. But there's a lot of brown people in Israel. Uh-huh. And the differentiation is a caste versus technically race. You've got to demean this, this. But you look at some of these pictures of the IDF, and you're thinking, well, that guy looks Palestinian, or that guy looks Arab. Let's put it that way. He's just an Israeli. And so there's a lot of people that actually look the same, but it relates right to the cast. The other thing is that when uh, Miles Horton came to Charleston, Guy Carawan came with him, who was working at Highlander, and Septimus taught him the song, We Shall Overcome, that was from a labor movement at the cigar factory there in Charleston. They had adapted it from a hymn. That's how We Shall Overcome got to, ha- got to Highlander, and Dr. King was at Highlander, and the rest is history. Well, maybe we'll use We Shall Overcome. Yeah. Very good. Side. God is on our side.